Happy New Year, DSR listeners! This year, we're adding even more content and benefits for members, including a new weekly column written by David Rothkoff, more exclusive content, new shows and hosts, and soon, a new membership option that will include a mix of live and virtual events and interactive discussions. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. Membership is just $5 per month or $50 per year. To become a member, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you and Happy New Year. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome again to our podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkoff, coming to you from kind of warm and pleasant Washington, D.C. I am joined today, of course, by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School, who is in, looks kind of more like Alexandria than Jamaica. Uh, Would that be right? Sadly, yes. So sorry. And also by David Sanger who may be in Washington, D.C., but there are no books in the bookshelf behind him. I don't really understand that. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the swamp, but the swamp is pleasantly kind of 55 degrees today. Yeah, it's very, it's very nice. I, I, what's what's going to happen now is that the, one of the effects of global warming is that people in Washington will see no reason to like go south for the winter. Well, I'm glad I moved to Washington. So... One of the things that shows the intelligence of both of you, and I might add myself, is that none of us are in Davos right now. But we get dispatches. I just saw one that uh, Henry Kissinger just spoke, who should be an example to us all. He's 99 years old. He's speaking at Davos. And uh, he said, you know, at this point, the whole notion that Ukraine is neutral is essentially silly. It's been mooted by the Russian invasion. And Ukraine should be in NATO now. And uh, I've noticed a number of other people in the past couple of weeks sort of coming around to this view that uh, whatever the case was at the beginning of this, the idea that Ukraine is somehow going to be some neutral buffer zone just doesn't hold water anymore. What do you think? Well, first of all, I'm not sure I regard Henry Kissinger as as, a person we should, from whom we should be taking advice on this or anything else at this point in time. Well, but possibly longe- longevity. Merely not being dead yet is not, uh, <laughs> does not create wisdom. Um, hey, that's really bad news for me and Rob Paul. Is all <laughs> I, I know, I know, you're hoping. Oh, um, God. Because um, it's really the only thing we had going for us to do. Yeah, it's, it's true. <laughs> No, you two both have a great deal more going for you than than Henry Kissinger, and always have. You know, here's what I worry about when I hear things like that. I worry that this this is this is like one of those situations where I don't know to 
the much maligned frog in the boiling water, right? And of course, it turns out that frogs are much smarter than people. And no, there's no way a frog just stays in the boiling water. The second the water starts getting hot, the frog sensibly leaps out. Except people are dumber and people do stay in the boiling water until they boil. And I worry a little bit, you know, when, when, when this conflict started off, the Biden administration was, was rightly very concerned about doing something that would provoke a major, a, a military conflict, an overt military conflict between the United States and Russia, between the West and Russia. And our policy in terms of the types of aid we were giving the Ukrainians was, was pretty carefully calibra- calibrated to try to avoid doing that, to, to help Ukraine without actually sparking a major, major conflagration. And as the conflict has gone on, I think we have upped the ante in terms of what we're willing to provide Ukraine. And, and that cycle makes total sense, right? Because, of course, Russia's upped the ante in terms of what a bunch of assholes they are. Uh, and how reckless they seem to be and how willing they seem to be to commit war crimes, to tolerate massive amounts of civilian casualties, and to generally thumb their nose at the uh, international system altogether, as well as at you know the U.S. and Western European states in particular. But at the same time, I, I'm not sure that the I'm not sure that we should be forgetting about that initial set of concerns. I, I think they're still valid, right? And I think that there is no question that declaring Ukraine to be making Ukraine part of NATO, partly, I suppose, the timing depends on the timing. But right now, that seems like a really bad idea. Right now, that sucks the United States and multiple other NATO states quite directly into this confrontation, which doesn't seem like a particularly good idea. At some hypothetical future point, you know, the devil here is in the is in the timing. But I so I do worry that this is one of those situations. Let me go. If I may go back to the frog, you know, where where as the level of risk sort of ratchets up, the level of geopolitical risk to us ratchets up, that we get lulled into this false set of security because it ratchets up a little bit by bit, and we almost don't notice it, and we start thinking that things are perfectly fine and stable where they are, and that therefore they'll be perfectly fine and stable if we ratchet up a little bit more. And I think that's that's a really dangerous situation to be in. You know, if we're talking about Ukraine becoming part of NATO at some hypothetical future time, 10 years after a satisfactory end to the conflict, well, sure, we'll figure that out then. But if we're talking about it any time in the immediate future, that just does seem like a, a recipe for dramatically increasing the risk of a direct, uh, a direct military and possibly nuclear confrontation between superpowers. So, David, Rosa is clearly one of those nuclear war chickens. Are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this good. is why Rosa is exactly right here. <laughs> so to phrase it another way, because Rosa's made the case very uh, effectively, we have to think about what are our strategic objectives here? And it strikes me that Biden has had two strategic objectives. Number one, help Ukraine remain an independent, viable state, democratic state. Objective number two, avoid World War III, as Rosa has put this outright. The way he's operationalized that has been to provide the arms to Ukraine, but not people and fighting and not putting us directly in conflict with Russian forces, which would lead to that escalation and could conceivably lead to nuclear escalation. And if that moment happened, it would happen, you know, very slowly, and then very, very, very fast. And so 
if you allowed them to get into NATO in the middle of a fighting war, you are essentially saying to every NATO state, you are now committing your forces to fight Russian forces on Ukrainian territory or on your territory if the Russians decide to expand the war. And if you're the Russians and you're trying to keep Ukraine from getting into NATO, the first thing you do is threaten to or actually expand the war. I'm not saying the Russians are very good at that. And right now we've learned a lot about the weaknesses of the Russian forces. But if you're saying you want Ukraine in NATO now, what you mean is you want NATO fighting Russian forces directly now. And that if you get into a nuclear escalation ladder, you're either counting on the Russians backing away or you're willing to walk up that ladder. And so I don't think we should, you know, sugarcoat what this would all be about. The fact of the matter is right now, it strikes me that Ukraine is sort of a de facto member of NATO. We are training its forces. We are providing them with ammunition. We are providing them with IMARs. We are providing them with armored vehicles. We may soon be providing them with tanks or someone else will. Uh, the British have already announced theirs. So the only thing we're not doing is getting in direct conflict. And that's what NATO membership would do. Yeah. Um, by the way, I don't have Kissinger's remarks in front of me. I don't know if he said do it now or do it in the future. I do think there is some underlying logic to the notion that Whatever was the case before this war started, Ukraine is not neutral, nor nor will it ever again be neutral. And, you know, the timing, of course, is a is a reasonable issue to discuss. But another By the way, thing David, that I took a quick I took a quick look at the Kissinger thing, and in one indication that Mr. Kissinger, Dr. Kissinger, still has it all together at nearly age one hundred. I think he turns one hundred in uh, in March is that he didn't actually go to Davos. He's sitting in his nice library with pictures of Dean Acheson and Nelson Rockefeller around him and conducting a conversation with our friend Graham Allison, who is in Davos. Yes. Well, you know, I think highly of Graham, but I think that's a mistake. As for Henry not going there, that sounds sensible. I think the point of NATO membership is almost entirely symbolic, right? Because as David says, for all intents and purposes, we're pretty much acting as though Ukraine is already a NATO member. The Article 5 of the NATO treaty does not require any other member states to go to war in mutual defense. It just requires them to you know, take appropriate actions if another member state is attacked. And obviously, that leaves a whole lot of wiggle room for states that not wish to actually enter into direct military conflict on behalf of a number of NATO member states. But everybody forgets that. And the Russians forget it too, and the Russians won't care. And I, you know, I, I think it's not so much that actual NATO membership would dramatically alter the legal obligations or the practical actions uh, of the West, but the Russians would perceive it as doing so. And given that, it would have the same effect of actually doing so when it comes to escalation. Well, speaking of virtual NATO membership, there, uh, as you know, have has has been a desire expressed on the part of both Finland and Sweden to join NATO, and pretty much everybody in NATO is cool with this, with one exception, at least one most visible exception, and that is Turkey's President Erdogan, 
And he has said that under the current circumstances, he can't support it. And of course, this needs to be unanimous. There are those with whom I have spoken to in the administration who believe this is because Erdogan has an election coming up and he's playing. And once the election is over, there'll be some deal that can be struck with him. Uh, But he does seem to be sort of a fair weather ally. And the response of NATO thus far has been, yeah, okay, well, we'll deal with that, but we're going to do everything in our power to make Finland and Sweden be as close to being NATO members as possible without actually, you know, signing on the dotted line. Where do you think this is all going to go? The Finnish president, when he was in Washington in the fall, told me at breakfast one day that he thought that Finland and Sweden would be in NATO by Christmas. That would be the Christmas that just passed. Given the difficulties with Turkey, I think they might be lucky to be in NATO fully by next Christmas or the Christmas after that. Did he specify which Christmas or just any Christmas? He didn't. I realized I should have asked him, and it tells you what a crummy reporter I am. So we've got an issue, and the issue is that – He has argued that Sweden in particular, but also Finland, support and and harbor PKK uh, members, the group that uh, Turkey has been trying to go eradicate. Uh, They've done what they've done with the United States. They've demanded uh, the instant extradition without much legal process of people they want back in Turkey to put on trial. And the Swedes in particular have said, you know, we're not going around our our legal system merely to get into NATO. But I do think there is a mechanism here. And I think what it is, is for a declaration to be made similar to what the U.S. said itself, that it would go and defend Sweden in the interim while they're getting in. So you didn't create a gap where the Russians attack because they're not yet a member of NATO. And see if you can get the other... 29 members of NATO to all make the commitment that Sweden and Finland will be treated as if they are already a NATO member, even if they don't have voting rights, until that moment arrives. And obviously, Turkey wouldn't sign on. Be interesting to see if everybody else did and whether this sort of junior membership in NATO is better than getting the kids captain's wings when you get on the on the airplane, right? The advantages to the West of putting Finland and Sweden in NATO are huge because it greatly complicates Putin's calculus. It gives him a much bigger border that for the West that he's going to have to directly defend if you believe that the next conflict is about physical borders and not about cyber and so forth. So, Rosa... NATO minus one. That's the, that seems to be David's formula here. What do you think? What do I think? Is that a good idea? <laughs> do I agree with yeah, David? Is it a good, I mean, you know, yeah, what do you yeah. do? I mean, Erdogan seems like a giant pain in the ass. Erdogan there are, seem to be ongoing ass. issues of a thousand kinds with this. And by the way, you know, the Kurds probably should have an independent state, right? So, yes, you know, Tur- Turkey's state. a giant problem here. So yes, what do you, Turkey, what, what's Turkey your response? perennial thorn in the side of the rest of NATO. It is not only problematic from the perspective of being a spoiler with regard to nations like Finland's efforts to get in over the PKK, but it's also a decreasingly democratic state 
and an increasingly autocratic state. It's not a state that we should necessarily be palling up to. So from that perspective, yes, absolutely. You know, I think, I think the problem with Turkey, well, okay, I take this back. I was going to say the problem with Turkey is that if we ease away from Turkey, Turkey eases back towards Russia. But since Turkey does that anyway, whenever they feel like it, it's not clear that anything we do is going to actually decrease that in a reliable way. It's certainly a problem. The people I've spoken to in the government seem to think it's going to get solved one way or another, that there's some deal out there. I don't know whether it happens after the election, whether it involves F-16s, what else it might involve. But uh, it's one of the things that's on the mind of the administration. Another thing that's on the mind of the administration is Israel. Jake Sullivan arrived in Israel today. He is meeting with the new administration. The new Netanyahu administration makes the Republican, pardon me? The new old administration. Well, new old, except it's it's different. It's, it is. It's significantly to the right of the old. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of makes the Republicans in Congress look moderate. There's some real lunatics in it. And there's any number of ways that this new administration could be absolutely an untenable partner for the Biden administration, whether it's effectively annexing the West Bank or ending the independence of the judiciary or going after the rights of LGBTQ plus people or undermining further the humanitarian rights protections of Palestinians or attacking democracy, for all of which are things that are on their agenda. Now, I think Jake's going to go in there and, and, and say, well, we agree on Iran. Let's talk about that. We, you know, try to find some common ground. But I was, I was at a gathering the other day in which somebody said, and there were some administration types there, do you think this new administration is going to be a problem? And everybody just broke into laughter and nobody actually answered the question because it was so clear that it's going to be a huge problem. David, can you explain to me and to our listeners, as I have not followed this as closely as I think you have, why is Netanyahu not in jail? How is he, how, 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 how is this possible? He's not in jail because, you know, the, the, the wheels of justice turn slowly. It's still possible he could be in jail. And today, as we record this, the Supreme Court ruled that one of his senior ministers could not actually join the government because he was convicted of tax fraud. And so, you know, there are, there are things in the offing. I think, uh, however, with your usual deft, soft touch here, you have, you know, zeroed in on one of the reasons that this administration is so right-wing, and that's Netanyahu's weaker than he was. So he couldn't really pick his partners, and he had to take these religious extremists and nationalist extremists on board. And uh, it's you know, a problem for Israel, certainly. Uh, it's also a problem for the United States. David, you know, I was, was posing the question generally to you, like, what can be done, if anything? Well, there's not a whole lot we can do. The elections happen. The only thing that I think Jake Sullivan can do and uh, Secretary of State Blinken, who we think is headed to Israel after Mr. Sullivan by about a week or two, is to try to put some guardrails on what they do. It strikes me they've got three different but interrelated problems. 
The first is moves by this new government to undercut the authority of the Israeli Supreme Court. They don't like the fact that the Supreme Court rulings go, basically their word is law, and they want a situation in which the Israeli parliament can essentially overturn Supreme Court rulings with a majority vote. I'm sure there are some in the United States who probably would favor something similar. I think we'd have similar, I think we'd have troubles if that, if that happened. The second problem they have is we used to dance around whether American officials would talk about a two-state solution. And Mr. Netanyahu, in his previous run as prime minister, would sometimes utter the words, but most of the time basically admit that he was opposed to a two-state solution. Now we have a government that is wildly opposed to a two-state solution and has said in his platform that it's perfectly willing to move ahead with settlements that we have considered try to pre-decide you know, the issues that would be in negotiation. I think the best the administration could hope for is to keep Netanyahu from actively declaring those uh, settlements to be permanent Israeli territory. And then the third problem they have is Iran. And they have this problem because Netanyahu came this close to attacking Iran under previous nuclear, when previous nuclear red lines were crossed. Well, now the Iranians have crossed just about all of the big red lines we have set up, including producing uh, 60% enriched uranium, which is a very short run to bomb grade uranium. And at some point, the Israelis are likely to come to the United States and say, okay, we're not putting up with this anymore. And the more subtle methods you've tried to stop them are failing. So we would move ahead with military action. That would be a calculus, I think, on Netanyahu's part about whether this would unify the country behind him or whether it would be a huge risk. In the past, he's walked right up to the edge and not quite done it. And I'm sure that Jake Sullivan is coming up with many reasons and probably some joint steps they can take together against Iran to dissuade him from from an outright attack. So this is a place in the podcast where we take a break and we say goodbye to those of you who are from the general public. And we encourage you to become members by going to the DSR network. Membership is growing because we offer so many new and exciting Bits of content, go to the website to find out what that is, dsrnetwork.com. For those of you who are members who get the benefit of the remaining third of this podcast, stand by. 